Okay, guys, we're going to get started. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Wow, I feel like I'm talking really loud. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I know you, I know you can hear me. <laughs> I'm just worried that, that I'm not going to be able to talk loud enough. Can everyone in the back hear me? No? <laughs> yes? No. I'm going to close this door. Oh, is it going to get too hot? It'll be fine? Okay. Okay, great. Okay, we're going to get started. First, does anybody need um, notes? Anybody need notes? Cool. Um, has anyone not received one of the Job notebooks? New people or anybody who wants one? Okay, here. Anybody want a notebook? Oh, yeah, here. Here you go. Yeah, no problem. Oh, Carr didn't get one. Anyone else? Hasn't got a Job notebook? We have a lot sitting around too, so if you've left yours, um, please look in the lost and found. Yes. Yes, also please write your name in your notebook. Um, just in case you lose it, please write your name in it, on it or in it. Okay, let's get started. Um, I'm going to start us off by reading our passage, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll jump in. Um, today we are in Job 3. We're going to read all of Job 3. Also, my iPad is on 10%, so <laughs> if it dies, I'm going to jump over to my computer. It's going to be awkward. We'll see what happens. Job 3. Let's read it together. Um, it says, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night... Let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the door of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly but are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in, for my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Let's pray. Father, we have a heavy passage today. One that... I flinch at because it's heartbreaking 
because it is so isolating and foreign, but also so known to my heart. And I also know that, that these words are familiar to my youth friends, even, even if they've never read this passage before. And so, Father, I pray that we would come honestly to receive, to come humbly, and we ask for help to be able to understand it and to receive help from your word, even in a, a very dark passage like this. We confess that all of your word is truth and profitable for us, and so I ask that you would help us to receive much from it tonight. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So last week, Eric asked in his message, what do you do when your friends suffer? And today, I want to ask the opposite question. What do you do when you suffer? As a Christian, what is the right response to suffering? How should we act? What should we say? What should we do when life is hard? When things hurt? I think you'll be surprised maybe by what the Bible and what our passage teaches us. Here's what Job does. He laments. In chapter 1, we saw a rich, upright Job living the perfect life of fear of God and prosperity in every way. And then we saw Satan take all of that away under God's sovereign permission. We saw him take away his possessions, his servants, his home, his children. And then in chapter 2, his health and his physical well-being too. All of it gone. Job falls on his face in worship at the end of the chapter. With his friend, and his friends come and sit in silence as they mourn together. But now we get to chapter 3. The bulk of the plot of the book of Job has taken place by now. And now comes a lot of talking, opinions, and arguing. Chapter 3 marks the beginning of the poetic discourse of Job, the part of the book when the language switches from narrative prose to all poetry. And for the rest of the book, Job and his friends will go back and forth debating what God is up to. This discourse goes on for 39 chapters, ending with God's response to Job. This chapter is not an easy one to handle. One commentator calls this one of the most depressing chapters of the whole Bible, and I'm sure you can see why. This is where the Bible gets real, guys. Here's where it gets messy. After sitting in dust and ruins of his life in silent weeping, Job, the first thing that he does is he opens his mouth and he curses the day that he was born. He says, I wish I had never been born. If you felt Job's response to pain in falling on his face and saying, the Lord gave and the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. If you felt that that has been too picture perfect, too neat and tidy, then here is where Job proves that he's not some superhuman, super strong, super unfazed robot who just accepts all the suffering in life. He's going to show us that he knows what you actually think and say when you hurt and when you suffer, when you mourn and despair and just hate life. Or, if you felt removed from Job's suffering because it's so immense, so horrible, and so alien to you, then here's some language that you might relate with. Or even language that you will one day relate with. Maybe your wealth and your family and your health might not have been stripped away from you by God. But here are some words that you might have said to yourself because of the rejection of friends or the loss of a family member or your debilitating depression. The book of Job depicts real suffering and a real believer trying to handle that suffering and make sense of it. And so we need this passage despite its difficulties, to teach us how to really respond to suffering. The big question for us today, though, as we read this challenging chapter is, is this kind of language honoring to God? 
Is Job saying these things out of faith? Are these terrible and depressing words being uttered out of a heart that fears and trusts God? Or is he cursing God? In saying these things, is Job being a good Christian? And we ask that question because we need to know how to apply it to ourselves. Are Job's words in chapter 3 something that we should imitate? Is Job a model for us for how to deal with suffering? Is it possible to honor God by saying such visceral, brutally honest, raw, heart-wrenching curses and laments about suffering in real life? Is it okay to say these things? Consider for a moment that if Job is not sinning when he says these things, then maybe this is the kind of response that we need for our suffering. Maybe this is the right way to deal with it. And so my answer, spoil alert, is that yes, it is okay. I conclude this from chapter 42, verse 7, all the way at the end of the book. It's a long way coming, but, he, but after God finally breaks his silence at the end, God declares that Job has spoken rightly of God. Job says all of these scary things in chapter 3, and yes, he is allowed to. No, he is not sinning. And yes, this is part of the help that God offers us in our suffering. Through Job's monologue in chapter 3, God wants to teach us that grief and suffering are not afflictions to be numbed or challenges to be escaped from, but realities to be embraced as opportunities of faith. My main idea for this passage is that to confess the reality of suffering is to have authentic faith. And we're going to look at the three phases of Job's lament and Job's heart behind his words to help us also to lament in authentic faith. Let's look at the three parts of Job's lament. It's the cursing, longing, and questioning. As we walk through the text, I'm not going to spend too much time explaining what is being said or the background of his words because I I think that this passage in the poetry speaks very clearly and emotionally to evoke the pain and despair of Job and to teach us to walk with it, through it with him. And I say that because there's a literary transition here, as I said, from narrative to poetry, and this shift alters how we should read the rest of the book. Poetry makes us slow down. As one author says, the fact that the book is a poetic drama means that we need to settle down for a slow read, not a fast one. As part of this reading method, we need to unpack the meanings of the poetic images and metaphors. We cannot read for plot because there is very little progression, and we'll lose patience with the book if we read for fast-paced action. Abandon all expectations that this book can be read quickly. Instead, we need to settle down to prolonged meditation on the subjections placed before us. The switch to poetry here is really meaningful, so we're going to take time. It's, It's part of the literary genius of this book. As the book transitions from clean, organized stories, moment-by-moment documentation of events, to poetry with constant repetition of imagery and ideas and feelings, thoughts and monologues, conversations and discourse, all without interpretation or teaching or imperatives or instruction, this transition happens. We step from story into real life. The neat theological packaging that we like to wrap the Christian life up is thrown out the window. And presented before us, we have the Christian life naked and raw, plopped in our faces. There are no how-tos for suffering in these passages. No perfectly packaged, pithy truths to put on your phone background or quote on Instagram. No, what we get is reality. It's the messiness of real life packed with immersive imagery and repetition that makes us dwell on feelings and emotions. So as we go, put yourself in Job's shoes. Keep a lookout for words and thoughts and feelings that you have experienced. Let's look at the text. First, we see Job's cursing. Job's cursing. In verses 3 through 10, he first curses his birth and conception. 
He says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Verse 3 serves as a summary statement for 3 through 10. And then in verses 4 through 5, he curses the day. And then 6 through 10, he curses the night of his conception. And by cursing both the night and the day, he gives this completely holistic attack on the day of his birth. And his words sound almost like an incantation, a spell as if saying these things could somehow turn back time and erase all of his past and put him out of his misery. Notice all of the language of darkness here. Let the day be darkness. Let God, may God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Gloom, deep darkness, clouds, blackness, thick darkness. Let the night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. That's how deep his suffering is. Job does not pretend that his life is otherwise, but he honestly speaks. Also notice, though, something about the direction of his cursing. When we come to this passage, we know that it's only down here from Hill for Job. He was at the height of his righteousness. He was being blameless and upright. And eventually he's going to start getting angry with God as time goes on. He's going to make unjustified accusations at God. And he's going to sin. However, although this might be the place where Job is descending into, into um, accusations at God, this, specifically in this passage, is not where he makes that transition. Job does not curse God as Satan predicted he would. He doesn't immediately sin as he was predicted to. Job does not sin by saying that he wishes he was never born. Even though suffering sucks, Job, this faithful believer, knows not to curse God. This is the first section of Job's lament, verses 3 through 10. He curses his birth and he curses his birth, but he does not curse God. There's a lot of imagery that we could go through, but I want you to hold on to that idea of darkness. In the beginning in creation when God made the heavens and the earth, he spoke it out of darkness into light. And Job here is reversing that. He's calling darkness. He's calling his creation, his life, to be uncreated, to be removed. I don't want you to take Job's words here as a, a verbatim, word-by-word -word example on how to lament, because there are many, many much better passages, for example, in the Psalms on how to do that. I don't want you to start practice cursing your birthday because you feel sad. My point is that Job's suffering is so deep, his pain so immense and so unbearable and so consuming that the only path that he can find in moving forward is by expressing lament in very intense poetry, in curses and in cries. That's how deep his suffering is. Job knows that he's not actually going to be able to turn back time. He knows that saying these things isn't actually going to call up Leviathan, this mythical creature of chaos, to come and destroy his birth and put him out of his misery. Job knows that he can't curse his mother's womb and prevent his birth in the past. He knows that his words can't make the stars go dark. The past is the past and there is no changing it. But Job also knows that it is impossible and just not right to bottle up his feelings. It's foolish to just say that this is fine. The Lord gave and, and took away, so I'm just going to act like everything is okay in my life, even though my children are dead and my body is deteriorating and I have nothing left in life. Job, in his suffering, does not curse God, but he doesn't pretend that it's okay. That's the conclusion from, from 3 through 10. He doesn't pretend and he doesn't curse God. That was Job's cursing. Let's look at his longing next in verses 12 through 19. Job knows that his curses are futile, that he, he can't actually change the past. 
and he can't wish himself or his pain away. And the futility of the curses extends into this expression of longing in verses 12 through 19. And he uses two why questions to express deep desire. The two questions mirror each other here. First, verses um, verses, uh, 11 through 15 and then 16 through 19. It says, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been, would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. The first question follows from his curses. He asks, if I had to have been born... And if, my, if the day of my birth just had to happen, why couldn't I have just died right at birth? Why did I have to stay alive? He goes on, why did the knees receive me? Probably referring to the act of being birthed by his mother or being sat on his mother's knees as a child. Why did my mother have to keep me alive by feeding me? He asks these things because if they hadn't happened, then he could be at peace. The usual beautiful things of a mother nurturing young life only have resulted in disaster for Job, and he wishes that it hadn't happened. He explains in verse 13, If those things hadn't happened to me, then I just would have slept. I would have been at peace. I would have died, and I wouldn't be facing all these horrible things happening to me. The second question in verses 16 through 19 are like the first. Why couldn't I just not have been born, he asks. If I just hadn't been born, then at least in the afterlife where the, wicked and aren't, where the wicked aren't troubled anymore and prisoners aren't imprisoned and they don't have to listen to their oppressor and everyone is just free and just rest, I could have just rested. He says in verse 17, or in, in verse 16, why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Job is in such agony and despair that even what he knows to be um, hell, Sheol, is a better resting place than life. Can you imagine that? His darkness is so deep that death and hell are better, more desirable options. In his clearer moments, Job knows that it's not true, that Sheol is a terrible place. Later in, in chapter 17, and uh, verse 14, he, he says that he knows it's where decay and the worm are our father and mother. But right now, in this moment, in his desperation, he thinks that it's a place of rest. Job resp- Job's response results from his recognition that his circumstances are not how things are meant to be. His despair says, there is something wrong about my world. This is wrong. It should not be like this. A world of cosmic order should not consist of suffering where the wicked prosper and the righteous hurt. But in in Job's finitude, all he can do is say that it's wrong. One commentator says it like this, The deep reason for Job's unrest is that he cannot understand his sufferings. He cannot understand why a believer, a man of godliness and piety, suffers with such mind-numbing intensity. This inexplicable trouble shakes the foundations of his moral and ordered universe. It is for this reason he cannot and will not rest until he's found some resolution to his cosmic question. At the heart, human, at heart, human rest is rooted in the rest of God when he looks on a completed and good creation. Rest is predicated on cosmic order, a creation in which there are proper boundaries, in which virtue is rewarded and vice is punished, in which there is justice and in which goodness triumphs. Job's, Job longs to share that rest with God, but at this moment his experience is the polar opposite. End quote. Job is so deep in his despair that he longs for death instead of having to face more of life. 
This is Job's longing, a longing for rest of death. Finally, Job closes his monologue with a question in verses 20 through 26. He says, Why does light, why does God give light to those in misery? Why does he die? Why, why does he give life to those hearts who, which are embittered and downtrodden, who just want to die and who would be happy if they could just die? Verse 23 is ironic. Why, he says, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? You might, might, might remember from chapters 1 and 2 that Satan accused God of hedging Job in to protect him so that he wouldn't suffer. But now Job laments that God has hedged him in to afflict him. When God removed the, protection, the protective hedges from Job's life, and when Job experienced freedom from God's protection, the opposite result came about, suffering, agony, and despair. And then in verse 24, he explains why he asked his prior question. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. Job's pain and despair are so common to him and so constant that they are more present than food and water, the basic needs of his life. The words for sighing and growing are here are strong words, almost violent words. Sighing connotes shrieking, loud moans and wails that come from people devastated by tragedy. But why is all of his despair so present and persistent? He explains in verse 25. For the things that I fear come upon me, and what I dread befall me. All of his worst nightmares have come true. Everything bad that could ever have happened to Job have happened. Imagine that. And then finally, in four different ways, he expresses his unrest to conclude in verse 26. He says, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. In death, even the wicked appear to have freedom from turmoil, from strife. But in life, turmoil is Job's constant companion. In the end, Job just wants peace. He just wants rest. He doesn't want his material wealth back. He doesn't ask for his family back. He doesn't ask for his status. He just wants to be free from pain. This is the main theme of Job's lament, restlessness. Job cannot rest, and he just wants peace. And it is actually this restlessness that points him to something more. It creates in his heart a desire for final redemption. Consider this passage. Where do you relate? Where do you see your own thoughts reflected in what Job says? Where have you said these things yourselves? I have to make this clear, guys. This chapter is not in the Bible as an example of unfaithfulness. It is an example of the reality of life, of a faithful person to God trying to struggle and wrestle with the realities of his life. And for us, we, we can conclude that crying out to God like this is not sin. It is not sin to say to yourself and to God, life sucks, this hurts, I cannot do this, this needs to be made right. And I know that in all of our lives there are ways that you are are crying out to God in this way. It is not a sin to ask God why. It is not a sin to be able to comprehend or to be unable to comprehend God's ways. It is not a sin to hurt. It is not a sin to tell God that you are hurting and that you want out of it, that you want your pain to stop. It is not wrong to long for the end of your suffering, for wholeness, for your restlessness to come to an end, and for redemption. 
I've preached this before and I will preach it again. When you suffer, the worst thing that you can do is to try and pretend that you are okay. If this passage tells us anything, it is that suffering is real and life is messy and God can handle mess. God is not fooled by anyone's fake strength in ignoring his or her problems. Biblical faith never requires you to deny the reality of pain. God never asks you to gloss over your experience with platitudes. He never asks you to blindly trust Him by pretending that all of life is easy and that you just have to be strong in Him. If you want an easy way out of your suffering, go ahead and deny reality. Pretend that your problems aren't real or minimize them by telling yourself that you're just going to be okay or numb by using the Bible to tell yourself that you just have to toughen up and be strong. That is not Christian suffering. Job's lament and his restlessness are proof for us. If you want a robust and strong biblical faith in the midst of suffering, face your pain. Confront it but not by being strong over it, but by confessing it. Take it and go to God. Say to him with Job, this is wrong, this hurts, this is burdensome and so tiring and agonizing that it would have been better for me just not to have been born at all. God, that is how terrible I feel. Tell God. Job is no stoic. He's not striving to be pure mind with no feeling. The Bible knows nothing of such dehumanizing philosophy, says one commentator. But we stand in a long tradition of pallid piety that has confused the Christian way with the noble but heathen ethic of the Stoa. So much of Christianity today preaches Stoicism rather than faithful lament. It preaches that you have to just be unfazed and steadfast without reason. It's, per, it's prescription for the affliction for the afflicted, one author says, is torpid resignation to the unquestionable will of God, a strict curb on all feelings, or at least on the outward expression of them, with disapproval of the weakling majority who cannot walk calmly in the furnace with tranquility and undisturbed by the fierce fires of passion. God is not testing Job to see if he can act like a brick wall. God is testing Job for his faith. He's giving him an opportunity to be honored by him. And how is that supposed to play out? It plays out by Job being brutally honest about his experiences. And the same is for you and me. Contemporary Christianity also has a very bad habit of making suffering and depression an abnormality. It says that if you suffer under despair and sadness, it says that if you struggle or if life is hard, it means you're sinning or your faith isn't strong enough and you need to repent or believe harder in Jesus to get yourself out of it. This is not biblical. And that's what Job teaches us. In light of Job's lament, that sort of of contemporary cultural Christianity that says you have to just try harder or believe harder, it's anti-biblical. It's the opposite of what Job exemplifies. Job 3 teaches us that it is possible to be a true believer and still feel sad still be depressed, to suffer but still be faithful. But that happens by not staying silent about hurt, but taking to God your hurt and being real with Him. The Bible names our experiences. It describes how we feel. God knows that your life is hard. And the inclusion of passages like this is proof to you and me that He cares. He is familiar with your suffering. He can handle it, and He is with you.
even in this monologue where Job is only talking to himself, he cannot get away from God. The passive voice of verse 20 where he says, why is life given to him, implicitly communicates that he knows that God is present and that he's listening. That God is the first cause and the one who is in control over all of it. There is a place for this kind of darkness in the Bible. And it is useful to us because it teaches us to be faithful and authentic in our devotion to Christ. Being a follower of Christ is not characterized by triumphalistic Christianity. Being a Christian does not deny that life is hard. And it doesn't try to pretend that life is okay when life is not. There is no Christian who says, everything's just going to be okay because I got Jesus, and then suddenly everything just turns out fine. It doesn't work like that. But the goodness of the Christian life is that in the midst of suffering, even though it is real and painful and hard, it has meaning. It has meaning because God does it with you. Because God understands your suffering. Because God is with you in your suffering. And because God will one day bring your suffering to rest. In fact, Job's restlessness at the end of this passage points forward to the true rest that would come in the Savior of the world. It points forward to the day when another lonely sufferer, just like Job, would be crucified, would hang on a tree after being rejected by his friends and left for dead. It points forward to the Messiah, Jesus, who would confess to his friends at the thought of his crucifixion, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. It points forward to his Messiah, Jesus, who would be spat on and mocked, whose flesh would be torn, whose blood would be spilled, and who would scream as he hung on a tree, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as the Father laid his entire wrath on him so that you and I could be saved from it. God is not above suffering and grief and sorrow. And we know that because Jesus submitted himself to it so that he could save you from it. He came and experienced every kind of suffering known to man, fully identifying with us, in ours, so that he could ensure your salvation from it. In Christ's resurrection, after three days, he does exactly that. He ensures your rest with the Father in eternity. What, we, what Job did not know, we know. The end of the story is written, and that end is rest for those who are in Christ. For us today, it means that we can grieve, means that we can mourn, we can lament, we can cry out to God as we suffer. Mark Vrogrup, author of Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, a book on lament, he writes, Christians can enter the rubble of life and even lead in lament because we know the rest of the story. In Christ we have rest. And it means that today we can be faithful as we lament to God. Some applications that I'd like us to consider. To those of us who are hurting, please don't suffer alone. I know that this idea of lament may be new to you, um, but I hope that you can embrace it as help from God in the midst of your pain whatever it may be, from the smallest things to the biggest things. I know that some of you may feel suffocated by the thought that at church you just have to act okay and be strong and be all put together. I know that you feel like every time you come to youth group you just have to put on that smiling mask and hide everything that is hurting and broken in your life. 
But Job is here to tell us tonight that a truly righteous person doesn't have to hide. A truly righteous person doesn't have to wear that metaphorical mask. Job, in the face of his suffering, screams and he weeps because everything is wrong. And in the presence of his friends, other God-fearing people, he makes the thoughts of his heart clear. When you come to youth group and you put on your everything is okay, I'm strong, life is good mask, not only are you keeping yourself from an opportunity to have rest in Christ, but you're also implicitly telling other people that they have to put on their facades too. I implore you to remember, as Pastor Kim always says, the church is not a Christian country club. It's not a place where all the rich people come and relax and indulge in their riches and flaunt that life is easy and pretend that things are good. No, the church is a hospital where sick and dying people, precious but afflicted souls, come to receive care from the great doctor. It's where sinners and sufferers come to receive spiritual heart surgery under his healing knife, where they come to receive counseling and care and treatment from his word. This place is a hospital. And how foolish would it be for a man who was just in a car accident to get rolled into the ER with his broken arm and gashed up face and bloody wounds and turn to the doctor and say, I, I think I'm okay, actually. I'm, I'm actually really strong. I can, I can fix myself. How crazy would that be? Or how ridiculous is it for a, a cancer patient to walk into a hospital and say to the doctor, yeah, I'm, I'm here at the hospital, but I'm actually not really sick. Well, maybe I am, but I, I can figure it out. I just have to go into my body and, and cut the cancer out, right? I can do that myself. That is ridiculous. But that is the attitude the action that we commit when we come to youth group saying that we just have to be okay, that we have to put on the mask again. To hide your suffering, to pretend that life is good, to hide your secret thoughts and cries for help is the same as pretending that you're healthy when you have cancer. It's to forego the help that God wants to give you in being honest and reliant on Him and in being known by other people who love you in this church. It's to say, God, I don't need your help. I don't need the grace that, you given, that you've given me in the midst of my pain. Please, I'm begging you, don't live like that. I know that, you're not, that maybe you're not hiding on purpose, that maybe if you feel like you can't trust the people around you, and maybe you're afraid that people will judge you or reject you or hurt you more. I'm right there with you. And I cannot stress this enough. God has designed this place to be a refuge for you. So please don't reject it. Please don't write us off. These people in this room, the people who you're going to meet with your small group, are here for you. And please let us come alongside you. Another application for those of us on the receiving end, for people who have friends who are suffering. I encourage you to be ready to love and come along your, alongside your friends. Are you ready to listen? To your friends when they are sad, when they're hurting, when they have hard and scary and messy and ugly things to say to you and to God? Are you prepared with, as Pastor Eric preached last week, with your ministries of presence and silence to be there in solidarity for your friends, to listen and patiently hear them out when they are suffering, to be there with them? to not abandon them, to not brush them off. In youth group, and especially in your small groups, you can help make other people comfortable to honestly share by sharing yourself first. 
sure maybe there's not always actually something going on in your life that is as debilitating as the things of, of Job's life but you can encourage other people to feel comfortable and show that this place isn't just some holy club where you have to act perfect, perfect all the time by sharing and by praying honestly. You can help other people tear down their walls that keep them from being open by tearing down yours first. For all of us, I hope that the language of this chapter is shocking I hope that it's foreign and uncomfortable. I hope that it challenges your ideas of of what it looks like to be a faithful Christian. Because the reality is that faithful Christianity, by the grace and mercy of God, can be messy. Faithful Christianity consists of many nights of grief and mourning, many seasons of sadness and pain, And God honoring faith includes the times of depression. It includes suffering and sadness and darkness. And are you ready to come alongside your friends in the midst of theirs to point them to Christ? The reality about this youth group is that there are people who are hurting in this room right now. All of this is not foreign to us. There are people who have been or currently feeling the tyranny of discouragement and depression. There are people who are hiding their sexual sin. There are people who have considered killing themselves. There are people who don't want to get up in the morning because facing life again is too painful. Wake up call, we are sinners living in a sin-tainted world. And we are all, for sure, hurting in different ways. My intent in saying these things isn't to expose you, or um, to, and it's not, it's not my intent to, to go, uh, or to tell you to go and find out the people who are suffering, to, to figure it out and, and expose them. But I, I just want you to realize that life is filled with pain, and pain that is happening in each other's lives right now. And a way, a means of help that God gives us in the midst of our suffering is to have people around us as we cry out to God, as we are honest. God is over all of our suffering, of course, but He calls you, if you are a Christian, to intimately be like Christ in His long-suffering alongside your fellow Christians? Are you ready and willing to love them with your silent solidarity and unwavering love? Are you ready to point them to Christ with Scripture when they need it? Are you ready to help your friends, to help your fellow brothers and sisters lament in faith? Finally, uh, an application for staffers. Have you made it explicitly clear that this is the kind of relationship that is available to those in your small group? Have you told them explicitly, I'm here for you? You don't have to pretend to be okay. I won't reject you. I won't hurt you. But not only with your words, have you shown it with your actions? Have you shown your students that you're there for them when they call at 1 a.m. because of a sudden bout of despair? Have you shown them that you're ready to patiently listen and withhold judgment and not criticize or fix right away? Have you shown that you're committed to them outside of Fridays, that you're not just their spiritual babysitter, but a true friend? Make much of the special discipleship relationships that you're given with your youth kids. Don't let them suffer alone. Friends, my prayer in considering a passage like this is that we would not fake having it all together. And that we would see the love that God shows us and allowing us to come to Him in our mess. And to confess that life is hard and messy. 
My prayer is that we would have authentic Christian faith and authentic Christian relationships by bringing to God the real hurt in our lives and finding our hope and help in Him. And praise God that as Christians, all of this is possible because Christ our Savior has suffered with us. Let's pray. Father, I know that suffering is not foreign to this youth group. And that's why we need a a, a book like Job. Because in it you teach us that we we don't have to just act like we're good all the time. You teach us that suffering and pain are not always results of our own sin. You teach us that you are with us in all of it and that it's opportunities to express restlessness and hope that one day it will all come to rest. So I pray desperately that you would allow us to trust and truly believe that authentic faith is lived out when we don't pretend when we're honest with you about the things in our lives that are debilitating and painful, that hurt. And it's it's expressed when we can come to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and rely on each other for encouragement, for solidarity, for support. And we thank you that all of this is possible because Christ our Savior lived His perfect life, one complete with the sufferings that we experience in our lives. We thank You that His life, in His life, that He can, that He can resonate with all of the things that we suffer with. And we thank you that his death was perfectly satisfactory. That in his death he took the full weight of sin and wrath that we deserved upon himself so that we wouldn't have to face it. And that in his resurrection we have hope that all our restlessness will come to rest. Work during this time of small groups, Father, we ask We ask that you would help us to open up, to be honest, to share, to rely on one another, or even to just start building those relationships that will allow to in in the future. Help us to be faithful in the midst of the things that are hard and to find hope and rest in our God who is near. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.